This is uh, one of the conversations I've been most excited and happy to put out. It's a conversation with Mark Galliotti, the author of The Vore. Mark is an expert in Russia and specifically Russian crime. And his book is, I believe, the best uh, guide to the Russian criminal underworld and how it relates both in terms of Russia's history and its present uh, context under Putin. This is going to be a really exciting chat for anyone who is interested in Marxism, so how Marxism sees criminals, anyone who's interested in neoliberalism, so how in the modern interconnected world of global finance, a Russian mobster can make their money importing opium from Afghanistan and then by that very afternoon be purchasing a house in London. And of course, it'll be just a fascinating chat about the Russian uh, gangster in general. As Mark discusses, there's a lot of myths that uh, are not exactly true anymore when it comes to the Russian mobster. But there is uh, quite a deal of intrigue and um, lore that they still use to their advantage today, even if uh, they've swapped out their full-body tattoos for uh, well-heeled uh, well shoes and suits. So I think this will be a really fun chat if you want to actually get a sense of what Russia's like today, if you want to better understand what the relationship is to Putin, how he sort of tamed what was uh, for many years in the 90s after Yeltsin, sort of a wild west, how he was able to get the gangs under control, and how the Russian state still to this day um, interacts with gangs, how they control them, how they view them, and what their role is in Russian society. If you like what we're doing, um, let us know. <laughs> we don't know unless you let us know. So you can get in touch with me by email, matt at Asia Art Tours. You can check out our tours. We do have tours that uh, introduce people to authors throughout Asia. You can check those out at asiaarttours.com. And of course, we have a great list of back catalog episodes. This episode in particular, I'd recommend if you like it, going back and listening to our conversation with Jake Adelstein about the Yakuza in Japan. All right. Here's my chat now with Mark Galliotti on the Vori, the Russian Mafia, and what their role is in Russian society today. I hope you enjoy. criminal class as you did, did it make you feel differently about either capitalism or communism? And did it make you feel more skeptical or more supportive of the rule of law broadly? Well, I mean, I think that it, very much it demonstrated, I think, the importance and the value of the rule of law. 
and the extent to which, however much it is often abused by the rich and the powerful, the rich and the powerful get to abuse any system in which they operate. Um, rule of law does at least offer some kind of scope for the people at the bottom of the heap. Because particularly, I mean, I came into looking at uh, organized crime in Russia through looking at veterans of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, who by definition were the people at the bottom of the heap. If you had any pull, any connections or cash, you made damn sure that your kids did not go to Afghanistan. Um, and therefore, I, you know, I saw just how miserable this system that claimed to be there for the workers actually was for the workers. Now, not because I think this was socialism. I mean, the, the Marxist-Leninist state was basically state capitalism. But I think what it did show is that when you have a lack of genuine protections, then the people who suffer are the weak, inevitably. And obviously, I hope this podcast puts a lot more material out there for people who aren't academics to know a bit about uh, the how criminality evolved and how you came to view it in Russia, um, particularly because all we have are really Eastern promises in Sopranos episodes to go on here in America. But I'm wondering for the, uh, the Vori, and as I told you before we started recording, just correct me on the pronunciations. This is V-O-R-Y in your uh, book. How did you go about studying them? And, and in doing so, you have numerous interviews or encounters with figures of the Russian mafia, the Russian underground. Did you have to take precautions or were there dangers that are not typical of, of academia? Yes, and I must admit that in the modern age of you know, risk assessments and, and so forth, I probably would have had a lot more trouble actually doing the same kind of research because, you know, I was young and thus by definition fairly stupid. Um, and I certainly took some risks that in hindsight I wouldn't. But on the other hand, I mean, this was an interesting, fascinating time in Russia. I mean, I was doing my research essentially at the right, very, very end of the 90s, sorry, the, the 80s, when the Soviet Union was essentially collapsing. And then in the 1990s, when this was, if not a failed, but in many ways a failing state, all the old laws, all the old rules, all the old understandings are broken but no one yet knows what the new ones are. So yes, I mean, I had to be sensible. I mean, the way you can do this kind of research is really through the grapevine. Um, I had encountered a few lower level people with unorganized crime, and anyway, they were the people who introduced me to other people at the same rank and above, and then you use that to speak to more people and so forth. And after a certain point, it became clear that actually the opportunity to talk to Angliski professor, I mean, if only I had been a professor at that point in my career, um, was seen as almost like a status symbol, um, you know, because they, they wanted to show that an outsider was interested in them. So in a way, I, I mean, I think I, I wasn't at any way near the kind of risk as if, frankly, if I'd been a Russian, because as an outsider, I was you know, in a certain special case. Secondly, I wasn't asking operational details. I wasn't saying when's the next drug deal going down, the sort of things which a police informant would want to know. But I was much more interested in how did you get into this? How do you see yourself? And you, know, you just find out what people want to talk about. And thirdly, yeah, I, I had to take um, some basic proportions. I mean, there's one particular case that I, I do refer to in the book. Um, someone I knew and trusted when I was in Moscow rang me up and said, this is guy you've really got to meet. Cool. Okay, who is this? A Chechen hitman. 
And part of me was thinking, wow, great, a Chechen hitman, that's cool. And part of me was thinking, eek, a Chechen hitman. So I ended up actually meeting him um, at a cafe in Sheremetyevo Airport because I knew that that means that we'd have gone through metal detectors and there will be security all around. Now, as it was, he was the nicest hitman you could ever hope to meet. But nonetheless, there was a certain kind of basic precautions one did have to take. That is proud. That would be a wonderful postmodern setting. And, and one of my favorite terms from your book um, is, is referring to the Vori as a postmodern criminal gang. You have another um, quote that I'm going to paraphrase here, and I'll probably put it up in the show description, but you essentially say you're talking to someone from the Russian underground, and they're saying to you, look, why do you in London love us in your country? And they're referring to the um, dirty money that uh, the Russian mafia uses to purchase property um, within London. And they, they finish that quote by saying, but you hate us in Russia. I'm wondering with the, with the increasingly criminal behavior of, of people in my country, like the, uh, the Sackler family or the Koch brothers, the increasing criminality of figures like Donald Trump or uh, Duterte in the Philippines. How does that quote resonate with you now? When it was told to you then, were you more um, supportive or optimistic? Can we see a lot of the elements of criminality that you describe in your book creeping into Western systems, or do you still think there are a lot of firewalls and differences between um, the mafia as you describe them and, and the modern capitalists uh, that we know today? Well, I, I think there are differences. Um, again, I think that to go back to this business of, of postmodern, I mean, it's also the extent to which actually what happened in Russia took place at a time when anyway we were seeing the globalization of, of capital, of business, and therefore you might say inevitably the eroding of the controls of, of the sovereign state. Now putting aside businesses like the, the whole Trump Farago, generally speaking what we have seen is a situation now in which money has no um, passport. It has no nationality. I mean, this is something that Oliver Bullo has brilliantly explored in his book, Moneyland. The extent to which, anyway, there, there, there is this kind of supernatural and supranational world of the moneyed. And their, their, their cash flows, let's be honest nowadays, anyway, cash is just simply a virtual commodity. It's a string of ones and noughts rather than a thing. But it flows seamlessly from whichever jurisdictions um, to, to it was into wherever they want it to go, and it's, it basically follows wherever the advantage is. And in that world, unfortunately, we have seen the West become the, the ardent suitors of any money that, that's around. And if you look at you know, where are the biggest money launderers in the world? It's London, it's New York, it's Dubai, it's Frankfurt. Um, but of course, you've had to have had the courtesy to pre-wash it first. If you turn up with a suitcase full of cocaine-smeared $100 bills and want to open an account in London, they'll call the police. However, if you have had the wit to bounce it through the British Virgin Islands and Cyprus and Israel and Latvia before it actually comes to London, so in other words, they have a certain degree of deniability that when if someone comes and says that was drug money, they can say they were shocked, shocked to discover because the chap was so well dressed. Um, well, then they're very, very happy to take your money. Now, 
that doesn't mean that at the same time they're fine with you then going and reinvesting that in a drug gang in Manchester or whatever. So long as it remains this abstract thing, then everyone is very happy to take their money to allow you to use their expensive financial services, to buy penthouses in your capital cities, etc. We, we like to forget the real crimes that actually generated that money. And I think this, this is the difference. At the moment, what we have is a West that likes to think of itself as law-governed, and is law-governed. But part of its prosperity is basically built on being the facilitators for all the illegal illegality that is taking place in Latin America, in Russia, in all kinds of other less well-governed areas. And certainly in your book, you do a masterful job of showing how an organization uh, like the Vori are globalized now. And, and I'm hoping for a, a future articles talking about the China-Russia uh, connection between the various uh, underworlds there, because I think that was uh, that's a fascinating cliffhanger you leave in your book, the developing relationship between the underworlds of those two nations. The extent to which actually the underworld is like the upper world. In other words, kind of the gangsters have many of the same sort of concepts and, and processes as we have. Um, the, the service sector is really quite striking. As Russian money is getting a little bit more toxic in the West, for political reasons rather than gangster reasons, unfortunately, um, it's interesting the extent to which increasingly you are seeing China um, becoming a new haven for Russian dirty money. Um, some of it is going into places like obviously Macau, gambling center, that's always a sort of obvious money laundering. But also what we're getting is a lot of people setting up joint ventures, Russian-Chinese joint ventures, purely for the purpose of basically parking their money, moving their money through Russian banks on the principle that people who are you know, willing to sanction a Russian bank account are much, much less likely to be willing to tangle with the Chinese. In the, in the last year, there's been this massive uptick in the amount of Russian dirty money, not just gangster, but also, you know, embezzling bureaucrat and everything else um, that actually has, has redirected to China. But the interesting thing is it doesn't stay in China. No one wants to, their, China, their money to be sitting there. It moves through China and thence back into the European and North American jurisdictions that they really want it. That, that's where they want to buy their property. That's why they want, they want to go and have their shopping expeditions. That's where they want to park their money. Something, um, considering that we have an American audience who's prone to xenophobia and Russophobia, um, just as a brief aside, and then we'll dive into the historical arc you trace out in your book, what is the actual involvement of a day-to-day -day Russian with the underworld? I don't want to color the conversation uh, as, I don't want the, the average Russian citizen to be uh, tarnished by the figures we're talking about. So I, I just wanted to ask very briefly in contemporary Russia, what is the likelihood if you're a citizen in, in Moscow or even uh, you know a, a third tier city in, in Siberia or uh, Tartarstan, What's the likelihood that you're going to come into contact with any of these figures? Well, I think it's about the same likelihood, and I say this as someone who lived in New York for seven and a half years, that an ordinary New Yorker is going to come across the Cosa Nostra. In other words, unless you're looking for them, unless you're in a relative handful of kind of environments and contexts, you won't. And 
even if you do come across them, you may not well know it. It might just simply be that guy who bought an apartment uh, on, on the floor below you. The days that when the Russian mafia was really visible, it's really the, the very dying days of the Soviet Union and then the wild 90s. So it's always sticks in the craw to be saying nice things about Putin. But nonetheless, one, one has to sort of note this, that he did play a key role in bringing the state back. And part of that involved not eliminating organized crime by any means, but house training it, making it clear that the days of real over flaunting of gangsterism um, were over. And, and the new model gangster doesn't look to stand out. He doesn't wear tattoos. He doesn't necessarily feel that he has to be driving a great big Mercedes G-Wagon and with you know, thick gold chains around his neck and all these other caricatures. The new model gangster, and are not, um, you know, obviously not the sort of street-level thug, but the, the serious gangster, he wears a nice imported suit. He is a businessman who just happens to do a certain amount of criminal business. So no, for most ordinary Russians, organized crime is something that sort of happens to other people elsewhere. And that also is, is visible in concerns about violence. The 1990s, the gangsters were fighting their turf wars for dominance and seizing control of the, as much of the economy as they could, often in the most overt and gratuitously brutal ways. Drive-by shootings, car bombings in busy streets, that kind of thing. So you know, everyone was at risk. Now, contract killings continue. But again, part of the new sort of social contract that Putin has imposed on the underworld is that you don't carry out kind of those sort of overt gangsterism. So basically now contract killing will just simply be the target, and the target's driver bodyguard gunned down one dark night. And no one else really cares. And no one else really feels at risk. There was a, a shooting at point when I was, it was in, I think it was 2014 when I was living in Moscow, um, in the car park of a big... Um, one, one of these stores that sells kind of building supplies and garden furniture and all these kind of things on the out-of-town centre. And I knew someone who, who lived nearby. And I said, well, you know, aren't, aren't you at all worried? He said, no, of course not. If, 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 if they went after you, it's because you're already in that world. It's just gangsters killing gangsters, so the rest of us are safe. So I think for most people, the gangsters have gone back into the shadows. Um, in the book, per my understanding, this type of gangster is called the uh, authority in Russian, the av avtoreti? Avtoritiet. Avtoritiet. I'll leave the, the correct accents to you. Um, and I'm, I'm, it is fascinating in that you, you do give Putin some credit in the book um, for sort of undoing the mess of Yeltsin. How should we view, what was the mess that Putin inherited from Russia? What was sort of the deal that he made with the Avturetti to bring about a stability. And maybe conversely, if we are drawing down the crime in Russia, how did the violence of the state increase under Putin as a way to maintain control? Excellent range of questions. We'll start with what did Putin inherit? Um, Boris Yeltsin, who was the leader of the sort of the Russian element of the Soviet Union before its collapse, and more or less was the guy who ensured it collapsed when he refused to make a, a new Union Treaty deal with Mikhail Gorbachev, um, then found himself president of this brand new country that literally had been created by, by the stroke of a pen. And what became very, very clear is that Boris Yeltsin was a brilliant destroyer, but not a great creator. 
When he had an enemy, when he had a target, he was focused and ruthless. However, when he'd won, when it was sort of a question of, well, okay, how are you going to define this new country? It became clear that he had no real vision. And it tended to be, actually, those were also the times when he kind of tended to uh, fall into booze and pills and become even less effective than he might be. Um, so you had this country that basically was not even being kind of defined from the top. Everyone was trying to define their own little bit of it. And for most people, that meant stealing what they could. Um, you had these, this crash privatization campaign because the, the reformers were worried that basically the communists would come back. And what they wanted to do was to weaken the state so that even if the communists did return to power, they were controlling a much, much weaker state. So the idea was, look, just get stuff into private hands. It doesn't really matter whose. The market will sort everything out. This was a neoliberal paradise for a while. Um, and the result was obvious that essentially anyone who had cash, anyone who had connections or anyone who had clout, and often that meant violence, suddenly became obscenely rich. And you had cases of precisely sort of um, you know, people being able to basically privatize whole industries into their back pocket because they had a bit of money and more to the point, they had the right person in their pocket. Uh, for ordinary Russians, this was a time of serious immiseration. I mean, it was so depressing being in Moscow at the time, because on the one hand, you would see the, the bright new neon lights and the new rich in their limousines. In the 1990s, Mercedes sold more bulletproof limousines in Russia than in the rest of the world put together. But on the other hand, at the same time, you would see a line of pensioners outside a metro station selling anything they had. And literally things like, I mean, I saw some person selling one shoe, someone else with a half used tube of toothpaste, you know, anything, because basically their pensions are worth nothing. The ruble was largely wiped out. So there was this period of the real chaos. And it looked seriously as if this was a country that actually might fall apart. Um, there was a first war against Chechnya, which declared this sort of southern region of Russia that had declared independence. And essentially the Chechens pretty much won. Technically, what there, there, there was a peace treaty, but basically, if a small part, you know, it's equivalent of, I don't know, Georgia declaring independence from the rest of the United States and winning its following war for independence. Now, after a certain point, people began to get quite worried about this. And in a way, people who'd already stolen, people who were already rich and powerful, they wanted to solidify the situation, to fix what they had. And they sort of were the ones who were beginning to think, no, we need someone to replace Yeltsin. We need someone who actually is going to restore some degree of order. And Putin was the guy they eventually picked. Um, you know, he, he was picked. He did not kind of claw his own way up to the top of the system. Um, and then when he came to power, it was interesting because in some ways he did exactly the same thing with the oligarchs, the rich business people who had been amongst his backers, as he did with the gangsters. He basically said, well, OK, there's there's now a, a new sheriff in town and there's a new law, which is basically this. You can keep all your ill-gotten gains so long as you realize that now the state is back. So long as you stay out of politics and you're a kind of a, a loyal citizen of the state. And most of the oligarchs were willing to accept those terms of reference. And when one Mikhail Khodorkovsky was seen as breaking those rules, Putin turned around and broke Khodorkovsky. And he went literally from being the richest man in Russia to being a prisoner in a, in a labor colony. Well, likewise with the gangsters. 
Putin didn't sit down with them or anything like that, but the word went out that there was a new rules, which is essentially, look, you're going to do your crimes and the cops are going to try and catch you, you know. But if you do anything that looks like a challenge to the state, if you do anything that embarrasses the state, then we will treat you as an enemy of the state and basically we will destroy you. And again, for most of the gangsters who had spent 10 years fighting these incredibly brutal turf wars, they were at a stage where they basically they, they'd established their pecking orders and they wanted to sit back and enjoy the fruits of their wealth. And so they too were largely willing to accept this new social contract. So, so this is what Putin did. He took a country that was basically in, in seeming free form, but within which certain interests had become rich and powerful. And they were waiting for someone like him to give them the order that they needed to actually be able to sit back and enjoy what they had clawed up, clawed together in the, that decade. One of the, the fascinating things is, is you mentioned during these, these periods of just incredible instability, as you mentioned, poverty that's unbelievable, fortunes being wiped out in a moment, is how the uh, underworld, because they were the only thing that was reliable for a lot of very uh, people who were lower class or working class, they would they went from sort of these figures that were reviled or just would inspire uh, terror into figures that the uh, community would um, rely on or have to go through or even be involved with the enforcement of contracts. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about how um, perhaps going back from Gorbachev's uh, pesteroika policies of opening up uh, Russia to capitalism in a radical new way. How did the 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 vore go from sort of these figures who were you you would avoid at all costs to ones who you might buy your vodka from, uh, who you might uh, encounter in in a cooperative, the stores that uh, uh, Gorbachev opened up. How did how did opening up to capitalism? allow the Vori to more open themselves up to Russian society. Yes, poor, poor Gorbachev. Um, I feel very sorry for him for a whole variety of reasons, including the fact that his reform program could hardly, and this is entirely accidental, but could hardly have been better designed to empower the gangsters. Before Gorbachev, organized crime had existed, but very much it was a marginal force. Um, the underworld was essentially dominated by black marketeers, and by corrupt party officials. Because this was a time when the Soviet economy was slowly grinding down. And unless you were very, very high up in the party, in which case you had special shops and so forth, but otherwise everyone had to play the black market for just basic necessities. But the gangsters didn't really play much of a role until Gorbachev came along. And one of his early um, policies was an anti-alcohol campaign because alcoholism had become a serious, serious scourge of the Soviet Union, creating massive demands on the health system, leading to very low labor productivity and so forth. And it was intended as a nuanced, multi-platform approach whereby you make it harder to get alcohol, but you also have more alternatives, you know, different fruit juice bars for young people and all this kind of thing. Of course, once the Soviet bureaucracy got their hands on it, it became a clumsy, ugly, essentially punitive process, which basically simply meant that booze was really hard to get hold of. Now, at the risk of coming into you know, the worst kinds of caricature, but nonetheless, it's worth saying that anyone who, who tries to, de to detach Russians from their booze is really on to a loser. 
Um, and suddenly there was this huge demand for, for alcohol, one that totally outstripped the capacity of the existing black market to provide. And so the gangsters got into that, whether it was in terms of um, smuggling in cheap booze from abroad, whether it was in terms of selling stuff, or whether it was in terms of distributing uh, the Samogon, the homebrew that you know, every, every granny knows how to make in her bath, it seems. Um, but suddenly they had this huge new market. And that gave them two things. One is it gave them a massive new income stream. They were richer than they'd ever been. And secondly, though, it gave them a degree of legitimacy because for most Russians, they'd never encountered gangsters before. And so the one formative moment when they meet organized crime, they're not coming to um, demand protection money from you or anything or sell your kids drugs or whatever. They're providing you with the booze you want for your daughter's wedding, for your New Year's Eve celebration, for whatever. And so they became seen as service providers. And I remember talking about this, I mentioned it in the book, talking to um, a guy who at the time had been a, a shistyorka, which is like a kind of gopher, the lowest level within the organized crime world. Um, you know, going with, 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 with a more senior figure into uh, one of the huge sprawling uh, blue collar apartment complexes on the outskirts of Moscow um, to precisely take orders for, for booze and realizing not only how welcome they were, but that people who were also saying, well, given that you can get us this, can you get us that? Can you get us cigarettes? My daughter needs an appointment at a doctor. Do you know anyone? All, all these kind of things. They became increasingly be regarded as the sort of the one-stop shop to get around all the limitations and privations of the Soviet system. They found themselves, therefore, with a constituency, a market, and a lot of money because they didn't know what to do with that money because you couldn't just go out and spend it because A, there was nothing in the shops to buy with rubles, and B, then it, you immediately become obvious if you suddenly turn up with a, with a suitcase full of high denomination notes. But then Gorbachev's cooperative movement, which is this attempt to kind of stimulate low-level grassroots private enterprise with people being able to set up little shops and restaurants and things, provided them at just the right time with just the right opportunity to both launder their money, saying, ah, oh, no, this money comes from my successful hairdresser's business or whatever, and also a chance to basically take control of much of this private sector. So in a way, Gorbachev is not only the person who empowers inadvertently the mafia, but he's also the one that turns them from being essentially thuggish predators into entrepreneurial business people who in their own also very thuggish and criminal way are addressing market needs and doing a lot, doing very, very well out of it. So even before you might say you have the real um, explosion of capitalism in Russia with the end of the Soviet Union and the formal dissolution of the communist state, the, the organized crime is already well poised to capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. Capitalism was a catalyst for sort of this second generation uh, of the Vori, the, the authority, that it, it offered them uh, a lifeline and a fertile ground for criminal activity at an unprecedented scale. Before that, though, you do an excellent job of connecting the gulag system under Stalin to how, uh, to essentially how the Vore were socially reproduced. Um, I'm fine with you giving a, as detailed an answer as you'd like, but for individuals who uh, are unfamiliar with the gulag system for the amazing battles you describe between groups between uh, like the the suki 
or the bitches and the blatnai, um, the, the more old school hardened criminals. What, where was the gulag system in the lineage of, of Russian criminality? Why was it so central to Russian criminality being reproduced? And how did Stalin, in fact, at times use criminals uh, for the advantage uh, of the state? Forgive me if I push, as it were, the genesis even further back, because I think in a way you need to understand what was before the gulags to understand how the gulags changed. The real genesis of the Vori um, and the so-called Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves' world, was actually in, in late Tsarist, late 19th century Russia, where you have um, a crash industrialization and urbanization pro program taking place. And the cities are growing fast, peasants are flocking to them, and look, all industrial revolutions tend to be pretty miserable experiences. But this is Russia, so of course it was a particularly miserable one. And you had these areas emerge, they're known as the so-called the Yami, the pits, which were the worst of the worst of the slums. Um, and these were areas where, you know, the, the absolute, the, the, the hopeless, the dispossessed, the miserable, and indeed the predatory clustered, which basically the state didn't even try to police, didn't even try to control. So there's you know, almost no-go areas. When the police went in, they went in in platoons and they went in with their weapons drawn. And in this area, you had this, this criminal subculture emerge of the Vorovskoy Mir um, with its own tattoos and its own language and so forth. But particularly, it was a product of people who felt that mainstream society had turned their backs on them. And so they, in due course, were going to turn their backs on mainstream society. So it's a very, very strong sense of, if I can put it very bluntly, fuck you to the rest of Russia. I mean, a lot of their tattoos, for example, were religious iconographies it, on, on the surface. And that wasn't because they were all good Christians. It was because that was explicitly to be blasphemous. So they would have like a Virgin Mary with her breasts out and so forth, precisely to say, this is the thing that is so important to you outsiders, and this is what I think of it. And one of the key elements of this code was that you never, ever cooperate with the state in any way. You never have a proper job. You never pay taxes. You never do anything like that. And you certainly never serve in the military. Now, obviously, a lot of these guys end up in prisons. Um, and when Stalin comes along, comes to power at the end of the 1920s, very quickly moves to this period where he's involved in this kind of whirlwind of persecution of his political enemies or people who might even potentially be his enemies, and also a massive campaign to basically, well, what's called collectivization, take control of, of agricultural land, basically na nationalize it. The peasants resisted, so the peasants had to be broken. And the main instrument of that were, were the gulags. Now, gulag is simply an acronym that stands for the main administration of camps. There was this huge network of labor camps all over the Soviet Union, including in the cities, but mainly in, in, in fairly sort of miserable parts of Siberia and the high north and Central Asia. And these were not just places where you just keep people behind barbed wire, but places where precisely people were meant to work. What was originally a political institution increasingly also became a key part of Stalin's modernization. Essentially, it was slave labor. Now, you're trying to modernize a country incredibly fast with poor resources. Um, in 1932, Stalin said, we are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make good this distance in 10 years or they will destroy us. 
so he's, he, he needs to control this massive population of prisoners, most of whom are not criminals in any meaningful sense. They're just people who didn't want the state taking their land. They're just people who laughed at the wrong joke at the wrong time or didn't laugh at the right joke. They're political prisoners. How do you control these as cheaply and as efficiently as possible? Well, sure, you could have prison guards, and there are prison guards. But, you know, if you're going to send people to go and work in miseries of Siberia, you have to pay them, you have to give them uniforms, people don't want to do it. So what the Stalin system comes up with, and it's quite brutally brilliant in this respect, is, well, we will co-opt a certain number of the prisoners to basically be our agents of control. They're going to be our foremen, they're going to be our inner camp security guards, in effect. Now, who are you going to go for? Are you going to go for the bespectacled 50-year-old professor who just happened to not, not to get on board and realize how the party line had changed and therefore got denounced as a Trotskyite saboteur, or the 25-year-old thug who's already in there for murder? Obviously, the 25-year-old thug is the guy who's going to be a useful enforcer. It's Essentially, it's, it's the Vori. So attempts are made to suborn a certain number of the Vori. And some of them are willing to do that. I mean, it, they want to be able to throw their weight around. They want to have a bit more food and therefore more chance of surviving these camps. In doing so, they totally break the code of the Roskoymir, this absolute taboo on cooperation. And this is where you have this, this split, the, the, you know, the so-called Suki, the bitches, who are the collaborators, and the Blatnia, who are the traditionalists. Now, in through the 1930s, to a large extent, they kind of pretend each other doesn't exist. There are much more traditionalists than collaborators. But on the other hand, the traditionalists know that if they kill a collaborator, then the state will come and kill, they'll kill them. So essentially, they basically ignore each other. Until Second World War comes. And you have, first of all, a lot of people who are you know, prisoners who are forced to fight. They're just basically drafted into the so-called penal battalions. And you also have a certain number who volunteer, including Vori. You know, driven by a sense of kind of loamy patriotism. And at the end of the war, they, they're sent back to the gulags. And what's more, you get a lot of people who were you know, basically not criminals in any meaningful sense. They were Soviets, soldiers who had been captured by the Germans. Stalin felt that basically a Soviet soldier should fight to the death. And therefore, you had the ghastly spectacle of people who were liberated from Nazi concentration camps kept it under armed guard, sent to filtration camps, and many of them just simply then sent on to Soviet concentration camps. But nonetheless, what it meant was that after the war, you have a critical mass of people whom the sort of traditionalists regard as their enemies. So the, you know, the ex-soldiers, the Suki, they're all lumped together in the traditionalist mind. There's now, they, they can't ignore each other anymore. And this is what leads to, leads to this, basically this civil war that explodes within the camp system. Um, but up to this point, essentially what Stalin has done, has been able to split the organized crime world, create one that is willing to cooperate with the state, and in due course, that is the, the wing of the thieves' world that will be victorious and will basically stamp its mark on the rest of the Soviet underworld. Did either Lenin or um, Stalin have a, a sympathetic or a, a view of political economy that viewed the Vore as, as just sort of victims of uh, capitalism or victims of exclusionary aristocratic policies of 
pre-revolution Russia? And if so, can we see a change in how criminals and the Vore were treated or attempted to be incorporated in uh, a Lenin period of governance and how they went to essentially this brutal tool and labor force under Stalin? Well, Len when we talk about Lenin, in some ways we've got to understand that there, there were two Lenins. There was Lenin, the, the, the ideologist, who believed in uh, a code that um, was ultimately going to create this, you know, frankly, almost heaven on earth, a world where there was no oppression, there were no states, everyone would, would, would be happy and well-fed and so forth. Lenin, the idealist. And then there was Lenin, the ruthless political pragmatist, who precisely because the end state to which he was striving was just so wonderful, was willing to sanction and use the most brutal methods to achieve it. And really, it's un I mean, part of the tragedy of the revolution is that because of the civil war that then immediately breaks out really from 1918 onwards, the whole Bolshevik party becomes a, a militarized authoritarian party and it never really sort of strips that away. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Lenin the idealist was not uh, a friend of the gangster, shall we say. Lenin the pragmatist was much less concerned about that. And if one looks at, for example, how the, the Red Army and especially the Cheka, the first Bolshevik secret police were formed, often they precisely were perfectly willing to accept bandits and gangsters. Um, if they were useful and if they at least were kind of willing to say say the right things and claim that they, they had seen the light and, and, and were now apprised of the great virtues of, of Marxism. Um, but as I said, this was essentially a, a, a pragmatic move. Stalin was an interesting case because he was different because Stalin had had a relationship with organized crime really since his adolescence. And even as a Bolshevik agitator in, in southern Russia, he had been responsible for the so-called exes, the expropriations, which is what they call basically bank robberies, to raise funds for the revolution. Before the revolution, they needed it to run the underground printing presses and so forth. And so what they did was essentially they made deals with professional gangsters. They would assist them um, in carrying out uh, not just bank raids, but even piracy on the Black Sea in return for a certain proportion of, of the income. Now, Stalin was never the kind of, he was, he was not a brave individual. He was never actually involved in the gunplay and the bomb throwing. Um, but nonetheless, he was a behind the scenes organizer of these things. So he had a relationship with gangsters before. And absolutely, under Stalin, you had this emergence of this ideological notion of the socially near, in other words, that gangsters were just workers who had taken a wrong turn and who ultimately, therefore, just simply needed to be led back onto the correct path and that they were therefore much, much better than the absolute, the ideological enemies, the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy who were opposed to the revolution, not just because they were mistaken, but because they were unpleasant and dangerous and, and unhealthy forces. So yes, un under Stalin, frankly, a gangster was seen as much less truly reprehensible as, again, that university professor who just happens to give the wrong line of Marxism. Um, building off that, I'm wondering to return to that question, but, but tweaking a little bit where you're talking to this Russian and Hussein, 
you hate us in Russia, you love us here when we buy your stuff. Do contemporary Russians uh, either have anything to offer us in the United States where we, quite frankly, treat our prisoners with utter contempt and brutality? Uh, and essentially, it's just become um, almost a class war uh, at this point with how much the U.S. locks people up. Do Is there anything we can learn from how Russia has almost this this... I don't want to say whimsical, but this attitude towards criminals where it seems much more um, you do what you got to do than the United States. Have you, from your time in in England or in America, seen a real cultural contrast in how the criminal is viewed? And obviously with with figures like we were talking about with the Abrag in Chechen folklore and the Voreviv Zakone, the the thief within the law, there might be historical roots to it, but is there anything we can learn from Russia about maybe feeling a bit more kindred spirit with the thief and the gangster? Uh, it's an interesting question. Let, let me give you two answers, really. One of them actually to talk about prison system. And again, it's an extraordinary issue about how America locks up a larger proportion of, of its people than almost any other country. But one of the key differences, for example, in the prison system between America and, and Russia and I'm certainly not going to say that the Russian prison system isn't anything but very hard um, and often quite corrupt. But at least it is a state system. What there hasn't been has been this emergence of a kind of prison industrial complex, as there is in the United States, of basically businesses that run prisons and therefore have every incentive to lobby for continued numbers of prisoners to be there. I mean, in a way, their business depends on locking more people up. So they will actually lobby for that. The Russians are actually trying actively to reduce their prison population, and they have been successful in doing so, and they intend to continue to do so. So, I mean, I, th I think there, there is a key issue. Is when, when, when it's a drain on the state, the state's less likely to actually want to lock people up. When it's actually a private sector business, then that business will lobby to have more people locked up. But the interesting thing more broadly about the, kind of the, the, the culture at work is... I mean, there is this this Chechen, this North Caucasus notion of, of the Vyabrek, the sort of the noble bandit who's kind of driven into the into crime, not for his own not for his own sake, not not for the money, but you know for honor or to resist a, a, a cruel or co corrupt leader. But generally speaking, in Russia, this is one of the interesting things. There is not the Robin Hood myth. There is not that notion of you know the, the gangster with a heart of gold. Who, who steals from the rich to give to the poor. Yes, the gangster generally steals from the rich, but that's because it's the rich who have the money. Instead, what you have is this fascinating notion of the honest thief and the dishonest thief. The gangster is generally an honest thief. He is a thief. He's a violent and vicious exploiter. But at least he makes no bones about the fact that that's what he is. Much more morally reprehensible is the dishonest thief, who actually is probably wearing judge's robes or a priest's robes or a uniform or a you know bureaucrat's suit, and is meant to be there enforcing the law, looking after the public, but in fact is stealing from them and exploiting them. That's much worse. So in a way, this is an interesting thing. The Russians have far fewer illusions. They, they, they don't really believe in the thief with a heart of gold. Instead, though, they would much rather, if someone's going to steal from us, just be honest about it. And for them, the worst people 
are precisely the people in positions of power and authority who are also stealing, but also being sanctimonious about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was nodding the entire time you were saying that. That That's going to be the money quote, because that's fascinating. And I think a lot of Americans that will challenge them, but they'll be interested. Um, I was talking to you off air very quickly about uh, figures like um, Alexei Yurchak uh, and also um, uh, I, I want to say Svetlana Alexevich, who wrote uh, Secondhand Time. And they talk about just how it's very hard to understand, even reading their work, just how traumatic uh, Pestroika and, and Glasnost were to the Soviet state culturally. This idea that, that, that Stalin and the Soviet system had been sort of held up as this, as, as Yurchak says in the, the amazing title of his book, everything was forever until it was no more. And I'm wondering for how the, this modern Avaretti, this sort of neoliberal buying property in London, uh, recruiting hackers and people to do Medicare fraud in, in, in the U.S. And, and moving their money to the, uh, the Virgin Islands to get it washed. Would a figure like this, you think, did it require not only a new economic system to emerge under Yeltsin and, and Gorbachev of, of, of welcoming in neoliberal capitalism? Did it also require this cultural shift of, of this trauma of, uh, of Glasnost and Prestroika destroying the old way of thinking, the old Soviet way. Yes, well, it's interesting because for Soviet citizens, they, they had for so long anyway had to internalize two ho- totally different universes. On the one hand, there was the formal universe, which was precisely that theirs was the way of the future, that in fact they, they everyone lived well and that the, the Communist Party regime was was beneficial and honest and so forth. And at the same time, their lived universe, which is everyone is corrupt, you need to play the black market for anything. Um, that you know, if you did get to see the outside world, you realize that in fact the you know the West lived much better conditions and so forth. And and they managed to somehow kind of in, keep those two truths coexisting in their minds and and that was a on one level a deeply socially morally culturally corrosive thing to basically have to live a lie and on some level know that you're living a lie Um, but it's also actually a sort of a a very powerful skill and if we see what's happened now again what what's fascinating is that you have I mean, obviously, there's been all kinds of other factors, though, you know, the globalization, uh, which, which really it cannot be understated the extent to which that, that, that was crucial in allowing not just gangsters, but, you know, corrupt individuals and multinationals and so forth to emancipate themselves from the tedious necessity of following the laws and regulations of any one country. Um, but, but also more, more generally now, you know, they're living in an age in which... Um, you know, Vladimir Putin, he has his big sort of marathon things called the direct line. One, once a year, he answers sort of phone calls and email messages and so forth from the Russian people. I mean, all obviously carefully managed. But nonetheless, in his most recent one, when people were quite rightly saying, well, why is our condition, why are our conditions of life getting worse? You know, we, we were told things would get better. And for a long time they did, but now they're getting worse again. And his only response was basically to tell them that they were wrong. 
and to th you know, throw out some various government statistics that told them that in fact their lives were getting better. Well, of course, that's not the case. So on the one hand, you have Russians who are told that the West is decadent, that um, you know, in, in, in Europe, a degenerate moral agenda is dominant and, you know, migrants are busy killing everyone left, right and centre. And in the United States, the country is kind of falling apart and there, there's no moral core and the economy is in, in, in terrible state and so forth. None of which is true. At, at, at best, it's a caricature of the truth. And yet you have, a, you know, a, a Russian Russia nowadays in which actually, you know, a huge number of them use the Internet. Um, they, they are very media savvy. A lot of them have traveled abroad. So they, they also know what the world is really like. And I think it's this capacity to balance two different realities, which particularly, I think, allows people to to move within these kind of criminal worlds to explain what I mean by that. Um, it, it, it very much is a great aid for the kind of rationalizations which are so crucial. Um, I mean, I've spoken to, for example, Russian law enforcers who say that actually allowing mob wars to continue is the best thing because it means that gangsters are killing other gangsters. Um, I have spoken to officials who have said, well, the drug trade from Afghanistan, one third of all heroin from Afghanistan now, now passes through Russia, um, is actually not necessarily a bad thing because it generates income within Russia, when in fact, actually Russia has the highest per, per capita heroin consumption in the world. And I've spoken to ordinary Russians who say, well, um, you know, actually the fact that our gangsters, our crooks and our crooked officials um, you know, move their money back and forth, you know, around the world and put it into foreign jurisdictions. That's no big deal because does it really matter where it is these days? Well, it does matter because it's actually it's being plundered out of, out of Russia, and something like forty percent of the Russian economy, various, frankly, back of the envelope estimates suggest, is in one way or the other stolen. So, I mean, for all these reasons, actually, it allows people to rationalise away a very, very terrible scourge. And that's what allows the, the honest thieves and above all the dishonest thieves to continue their thievery. One of the last figures in the book is a mob boss who is just a brutal person who murdered a lot of people. One of the last sort of old school vore. And he's given this funeral that's like a state official. I'm wondering for the vore themselves and this, you know, the the sort of disappointment of, you know, the idea, the, the um, imagery, the idolatry is tattoos, limousines, beautiful women, guns, and they're sort of, maybe they're given like an office building where you go in and you are, you know, rerouting accounts and committing Medicare fraud. And how do the, do, do the Vore still try to sort of pretend that they're of the old ways, the old world of the thief. And how do how do how does that work in contemporary Russian culture where just like our, you know, we have all these kids who can quote Goodfellas line for line or are pretending they're Tony Soprano, but don't want to go along with the mundanity of half to, you know, of Tony Soprano is going to college with his kids picking up the groceries. How, do, how does this sort of cultural contradiction exist in the Vori themselves and, and Russian contemporary culture that maybe idolizes them but 
also knows that they're, they're not the same anymore. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting, particularly because I think Russia at the moment is exactly at this point, or this inflection point in which one, one criminal generation is basically dying away and a new one is, is emerging. Um, the, old, the old school Vori, who exactly were the, were the sort of tattooed ones who believed in this very ruthless, rigid code, which included, for example, that you, know, you, you never break a deal which you've secured with another member of the, of the Rovskoy Mir, that kind of thing. Um, they basically are, are dying or have died. You still have people who kind of pretend to. Um, but, you know, for example, the highest level, the authority figures within the underworld were known as the Vodivazakonya, the thieves within the law or thieves within the code. Now, once upon a time, to become one of those, essentially, you know, your peers had to nominate you. There was a process whereby, you know, lots of people were encouraged to say, you know, is this person truly, you know, worthy of, of this rank? And if you were a Vord of a Zakonia, you were essentially, you were not, not just a, not a gang leader necessarily, but more like a kind of a judge and a high priest um, of the criminal world. You would, you would be the person to resolve disputes and such like. Now, essentially, if you want to call yourself a Vord of a Zakonia, you basically pay off one of your mates and he sort of quickly crowns you and there you go. It's become the kind of cr criminal equivalent of a vanity plate on your car. So you still have the forms of the old world, but basically everything that un underpinned them is dying. Um, and so absolutely, the people who wanted that kind of real extravagance, who, abs who also, it's worth mentioning, they, they looked to America. I mean, they looked to Godfather movies and such like for their kind of how-to book on how you are a proper gangster. Just as, frankly, Italian-American gangsters look to the Godfather as their how-to guide. Well, that generation is going. Now you have a new generation, the Avtoricet, who is a gangster, but is also a businessman, may well also be involved in politics, probably has, you know, large donations to charities and such like, wants to look legitimate. Now the, the real aim is to be the kind of gangster who everyone thinks is a gangster, but no one can prove. And that basically, therefore, you have the best of both worlds, that you have the legitimacy to be invited to the mayor's reception and also the fear that goes with being a gangster. So people aren't going to sort of challenge you. So this is a very new kind of, 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 of criminal who is emerging. And it would be interesting to see how that begins to become replicated in culture, because if you look at you know, Russian film and, and, and TV and so forth, what's interesting is that... Um, the gangster occupies a slightly different role. There are kind of just classic violent gangster movies and things, fine. But what there also is, is the position of the gangster. Um, there's, I mentioned it in the book, there is, for example, this very light and frothy, almost, almost sitcom, but not quite, um, called Fizruk, which literally means, um, you know, physical ed teacher. Um, and it's a kind of old school gangster who, for reasons I won't go into, has to basically masquerade as a school teacher to keep an eye on the daughter of, of, of his former boss. Now, if that had been made in America, by the end of the first episode, you'd have got a sense of the lead character's redemptive arc. How probably, whether it's the love of a good woman or his feelings for the kid or whatever, how he's going to morph from being a thuggish gangster to a genuine hero. 
Not so in the Russian version. I mean, yes, in the Russian version, there, there are certain kind of redemptive aspects of his character, but basically he is still the same guy. He is still the thuggish gangster who just happens to now have to fulfill the roles of being a school teacher as well and find himself. And it's more than anything. It's not really about his gangsterness. That's almost like kind of taken as red. He could just as easily be an undercover cop or whatever. It's about, you know, fish out of water kind of, uh, sort of antics of someone who isn't a school teacher finding himself in that situation. So from the Russian's point of view, being a gangster is not, not so abnormal, not so kind of weird, a totally different thing. It's just, hey, you know, he's a gangster the way someone could say he's a journalist or, you know, he's a street cleaner. It's just who they are. So I think gangsters have become worryingly normalized in that respect. Um, they are just just the guy in the you know apartment next door mm -hmm. and uh there's cultural ubiquity in things like uh chanson music where it's like one of the most popular genres within russia but it's just something people almost listen to to like when they're in the cab obviously in other in other societies you've got what we might think of as kind of criminal you know music that exalts criminals and criminal values narco corridas um, gangster rap. But the point of that chanson is absolutely, it's, it's your grandmother could be listening to it. In a way that it has to be said that very few people's grandmothers probably listen to gangster rap. I wanted to ask because the book sort of ends uh, on sort of this cliffhanger like we were talking about of globalization. Um, I'm wondering what some of the figures you know in, in the Russian underworld or what people have told you from law enforcement, what are some of the, the slang or the, a proverb that would really describe how they feel about this current moment in Russia under Putin? And where do they think um, that Russia or perhaps how the world has to come in contact with them, where do they think sort of criminality is heading in the future, both in Russia and abroad and, and maybe how those two things mix. The essence of the sort of closing of the book, I, I, I try and bring out what optimism there is to be found, because I am obscurely and unfashionably optimistic about Russia trajectory long term. Um, and the fact that I think one, one, one can see there are forces gathering to actually begin to address this. It's going to, going to be a generational thing, just as one sees, for example, in Italy. Um, but nonetheless, I think that there, there is more evidence that there are people who are willing to actually resist this. But if if we're honest about this, I mean, it is precisely this fact of how hard it is for any country to address criminality in a globalized era, because exactly you are having to deal with something that is by, by definition cross-border and that exploits the problems in cooperation between law enforcement, between across borders and such like. Um, there, there is this, this, this wonderful... Um, Russian proverb, which I sort of mentioned, I mean, even a bishop will steal when he's hungry. Um, and I think this is really what, what, what comes out for me is in terms of when, when, when talking to Russians, even Russians who really want to do something about the problem, is the extent to which actually um, necessity tends to drive people towards either um, becoming criminals or turning a blind eye to criminals. And I mean, this, this might seem quite a stretch, but I mean, this even has a link with the United Kingdom at the time of Brexit, because um, I've been talking to people within law enforcement here who are worried that actually if, if Brexit happens and it's a hard, a hard Brexit without a deal with the European Union, probably the British economy will suffer some 
I hesitate to use the word tank, but nonetheless, will certainly suffer some serious dis dislocations. And at that point, the temptation is from within the, the British system is to say, well, do we really want to be cracking down on all this dirty Russian money coming here? And indeed, dirty Chinese money and dirty Nigerian money and everyone else's. Um, or are we just simply in, in a bind and desperately need whatever liquidity we can get? And then their concern within law enforcement is absolutely that no one will be so crass as to say, stop looking into Russian oligarchs. But the political support, the resources and so forth, those investigations need falls apart. Well, likewise, I think in Russia, there is a sense that because at the moment times are pretty hard after you know so many years of you know improving quality of life now a combination of things including not really limited to foreign sanctions mean that actually the economy is in trouble again their concern is that's exactly the case when what 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 do people do when times are hard people do whatever is necessary and that may well be go back to criminality We're, we've already seen for example a spike in what's called raiding which is when basically whether it's through corruption, whether it's through violence, you take over someone else's company. You know, use the typical thing is you present some document that says, "No, you see, you signed off your company to me, and here my 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 twenty you know heavily armed associates are here to ensure that." And look, this judge who happens to be my brother-in-law has signed the document saying this is entirely legal. So I think this is. I mean, the, the concern is exactly that that, that when. In Russia, even though there are certain positive signs, if Russians get hungry, then even the bishop will steal. Uh, well, Mark, this was fascinating. Was there anything we didn't touch upon? Um, did you want to clarify at all that when we say Russian, we need to be careful because it's a diverse nation? And as you bring up in the book, that means Chechnyan, that means Armenian, that means Georgian, that means Tartan. Was there anything that we didn't touch upon that's important or you think... Um, you'd like to bring up just for the sake of closure? Well, I do realize that I didn't actually answer your part, you know, one of your questions when you had a sort of collection of them about state violence. So let me go back to that. Because um, one, one of the ways that's really interesting about Russia is that um, the Russian state is not that violent. Um, now, if one looks at, for example, what happened in the, in the Chechen war, the second Chechen war in particular was you know, horrifically brutal. One can look at the, you know, the, the unpleasantnesses that are taking place, to put it mildly, in southeastern Ukraine, the Donbass region. One can look at you know, Russian-supported offensives in Syria, all these tremendously violent. This is not a state that has a problem with violence, but what we have is not the kind of real widespread kind of violence, whether it's sort of by police or by Sort of vigilantes supported by the authorities or whatever that for example one could see in Duterte's era or indeed in, in, in modern Venezuela and one of the reasons for that is actually precisely because no one questions the state's capacity to use violence it's an interesting example of when you know that the state is the biggest gang in town you don't necessarily challenge it when the state does move against gangsters high-level gangsters, which it does usually for political reasons as much as anything else. Uh, there was a chap by the name of uh, Kumar in Barsukov, who was basically the, the most senior gangster of, of St. Petersburg, and someone with whom Putin had had a, sort of dealings. But after a certain point, he became too politically problematic, and therefore he was arrested. Same, for example, the mayor of Makachkala, uh, Said Amirov, in, in, in the south. At a certain point, some people become 
irritating or problematic or embarrassing and the state decides to crack down on them. And when it does, it does so with massive overkill. Uh, I mean, to take Kumar in Barsukov, they, they basically airlifted 150 police commandos. They used armored vehicles. They grabbed him. They bundled him into a plane. They flew him back to Moscow and so forth. All very dramatic, all very um, cinematic, captured on camera. Did they need 150 guys to take him? No, of course not. But they wanted just to make that point. The state is the biggest gang in town. Doesn't matter how big you are, how well connected you are, how many men with guns you've got. We are bigger, we have more men, and they have bigger guns. And in that respect, actually, the Russian state is a bit like the Chechens. Because Chechen gangsters, everyone knows that they are incredibly tough and incredibly violent. And therefore, ironically enough, you don't challenge them. If the Chechens come along and demand protection money from them, if it had been someone else, you might think, well, I've got lots of private security and, you know, my friends are chief of police. It's worth thinking about saying no. The Chechens come along, you think, ah, game over. Fair enough. How much do you want? What both the, the, both the Chechens and the Russian state demonstrate is that if you have a reputation for violence, if you have the apparent capacity and will to use it, then ironically, you have to use it less because precisely people are not going to challenge you. And you mentioned in the book, um, just this came to mind, This you call it, I think, Mick Mafia, where within Russia, just like you were saying, you can sort of pay someone off to be considered a gangster. You can do the same to franchise your gang as Chechnyan or Chechnyan affiliated. So you have all these gangs. <laughs> There's not a single Chechnyan in them, but they're known as the Chechnyan gang because they paid this sort of fee and it's just this wonderful bit of capital entrepreneurship uh in the russian underworld that i i i'd love to read a book just about that yeah i mean this is a fascinating thing again th this is one of the reasons for studying organized crime apart from the fact that let's be perfectly honest it's cool but also because exactly it is a dark shadow of the upper world it's a way of looking at what's happening in legitimate, well, seemingly legitimate society and mainstream society and so forth. And yeah, you've, you've got these, these upper world characteristics like franchising making their way into the underworld. So if you've got a powerful brand name like the Chechens, absolutely, you're going to capitalize it. But the interesting thing is then what that means is you have to protect your brand name. If the people who are, who are paying money to be able to say we work with the Chechens don't live up to your standards, they aren't tough, they aren't efficient, they aren't brutal enough. Well, then you have to go and teach them a lesson. Um, so again, you know, you even have the Chechens thinking about the importance of their brand name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. I'm going to, um, when I edit this together, I'm going to do a shot by shot comparison with that TV show, Barry, and see if it passes the muster of your book. Um, Mark, it was, it was an absolute pleasure. This was a really fun chat. As you mentioned, this is really interesting. We're going to try to edit in some Shanshan music. And uh, just for people who are new to your work, what are you working on now? And where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about the Vore, uh, the Russian Mafia, or the Russian state? Well, I mean, I have a blog called In Moscow Shadows, though it has suffered of late because I've been doing too many other writing gigs to be able to put much on it. Um, they can follow me on, on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, and I have a Facebook page, which is Mark Galliotti on Russia. Um, in terms of what I'm working on, I mean, I've got some, some shorter projects. I've got a book about changing nature of, of war and conflict in the world. Um, but my next big book, 
of comparable Tavori, which will you know be some years in the making, is on the Russian intelligence and security community. Basically, not just who are Moscow's spies and secret policemen, but you know again based on conversations with them over the last thirty years, but also much more broadly how they are actually shaping Russian policy and Russian society, how far their own kind of values and approaches have become internalized by everyone else. So in some ways, it's very much it's trying to do trying to do for the spooks what Vori was meant to do for the gangsters. Well, that is also sends a chill up my spine, both in anticipation and terror. So you're probably on to something there. Um, Mark, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was my very great pleasure. So this is a bonus question I sent this to Mark, and he was kind enough to send his reply. It's about comparing Russia to the current situation in Hong Kong. Recently, for those who don't know, triads, who are the historic Hong Kong gangs, were used to assault protesters, and many experts believe that there was collusion between the Hong Kong government or the Hong Kong police force or China, most likely some combination of that, with the triads to unleash violence that they did not want pointed back uh, at the state. So using thugs to do dirty work that the police or government uh, did not want traced back to them. I asked Mark about if there are similar tactics used in the Russian government and if he feels that uh, Putin has used gangs for these sorts of violent tactics uh, in the recent history of Russia. In the light of what we've seen about triads being used to beat up protesters in Hong Kong, not for the first time, um, it's entirely valid and relevant to think about the Kremlin using the Vori and the other forms of organized crime as their own enforcers. But on the whole, I don't think it's something that this Russian government essentially looks to. It, it has a massive, um, if I say legal, I don't mean in terms of every way that they operate, but nonetheless, a, a, a massive sort of overt security presence. The police, the National Guard, the Federal Security Service and so forth. And these are basically their tools of choice. On the other hand, where we see organized crime being useful as a form of political enforcement, it's in, shall we say, the uncontrolled spaces. It's not actually in Russia itself. We, we saw them being mobilized um, in Crimea in support of the so-called Little Green Men, the Russian commandos, when they were seizing it in 2014. We continue to see them being used to provide firepower in the Donbass. We have seen individual members of the elite and oligarchs and minigarchs and so forth use them just for individual purposes to beat up a journalist here or to intimidate a political or business rival there. But that's about it. Authoritarian regimes generally don't need them. And likewise, if one looks at China, after all, this is not happening in mainland China where there's the People's Armed Police and the Ministry of State Security and so forth. This is happening in Hong Kong, which is a little bit more complex, a little bit more, again, from, from Beijing's point of view, uncontrolled. If you look at other places where criminals tend to be used as political enforcers, they're not usually in the context of strong, solidly established regimes. They tend to be used by less stable, less legalized, shall we say, regimes, or in particular areas. Again, one could look at, say, the, 
the Kurdish-controlled parts of Turkey, where the Turkish government made something of a devil's bargain with all kinds of militias and criminal groups. So it, that's, I think, where, the, as it were, the future lies for the use of, of, of gangsters as political enforcers. And therefore, the only real part of Russia where we, we see that on any kind of systematic level is Chechnya. Um, but even then, it's a slightly kind of complex situation. But if you look at the Chechen strongman warlord Ramzan Kadyrov, who basically rules Chechnya as a pretty much an autonomous fiefdom of his own, I mean, he is at the centre of a power structure that is, to a heavy extent, based on institutionalised embezzlement, violence, and other forms of criminal activity. So it's it's, it's a very specific response. And if it wasn't that the Russians had been fighting this bloody anti-guerrilla war in the North Caucasus, they probably would never have elevated Kadyrov to that point. So it's a response to chaos, rather than a response to just simple authoritarian rule. Одесского кищемала Бежали два уркала Бежали два уркала Дай на Богу На Сонькиной малине Они остановились Они остановились Отдыхну На Сонькиной малине Они остановились Они остановились отдыхнуть. Один герой гражданский, махновец партизанский, Добраться невредимым не успел. Он весь в бинтах одетый, и водкой подогретый, И песенку такую он запел. Товарищ, товарищ, порядки мои раны, порядки мои раны в голубоке. Одна вот заживает, старая нарывает, а третья засела в глыбоке. Закройте мое тело, заройте мое тело в глыбаке. Покрой мою могилу, улыбну на уста мне, улыбну на уста мне в смолоке. Товарищ, товарищ, скажите моей маме, что сын ее погибнул на войне. Ковкою рукою и шашкою стальною Из песни на веселой ногове
Лесского кичмана Бежали два уркана Бежали два уркана С коновой На Сонькиной малине Они остановились Они остановились Отдыхнуть Ох, таки на Сонькиной малине Они остановились Они остановились Отдыхнуть 